0: Welcome back to the New York Film Academy Hour. It's episode 30. That's right, 30 episodes into this show. It's incredible. And today we have Chris Devane in the studio with us, casting director extraordinaire. Uh, he's going to give us the full rundown tell you stuff that even stars don't know. And we're super excited to talk to him. So stay tuned.
1: Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies.
0: Hey guys, it's Joelle. And Pega. And we're super, super happy to be here with Mr. Chris Devane today. How are you doing, sir? I couldn't be better. This (laughs) is wonderful. You've been involved in so many projects, uh, from very, like, commercials to major motion pictures, literally the whole gambit. Uh, I just want to jump in. We always start with the same question, and that is when did you first fall in love with movies?
1: That's a good question. Uh, actually, it wasn't movies that I'd first fallen in love with. It was uh, the television. Mm-hmm. And this was back in 1974, so I doubt either one of you guys remember television back in those days. <laughs> uh, it was vastly different than it is today. And I remember in 1974, I think it was in the summertime, seeing my very first episode of Happy Days. Uh-huh. And kind of said to myself, ah, that's what I want to be. I figured out what I wanted to be. But I had no idea about acting. I just wanted to be Fonzie. <laughs> and, you know, and of course your mom says, well, no, honey, that's they're just pretending. I'm like, oh, well, I want to pretend as well, too. So uh, she took me down to an audition. It was for a television show called The Rockford Files with James Garner, and this was in 1974, and I booked the very first job that I went on, so wow. I, I kind of had a very whacked perception of what <laughs> show business was truly about. I thought their par- that your parents just take you down and put you in the movies. I didn't realize I had to compete, and other people wanted to do this as well. So, um, And in the process of doing some of the that cheesy 70s stuff, Love Boat, Rockford Files, Chips, things like that, uh, those would... Air on television, and then I would have to go back to school the next day. And I think we all know how uh, how brutal uh, mm. kids can be in, in the teasing facet. So I made a decision at a very early and young age that I enjoyed the process of acting, and I en- and I enjoyed the whole entertainment industry. I didn't like that factor, so I made a very de- a very good decision early that I did not want this. But I'm sure, as many of your guests have told you, once that bug bites. It's yeah. it's always with you. So I decided to move behind the camera after that.
0: I like that you became uh, the person doing the judging and deciding yeah. afterwards. You're right. like, that's not for me, but I can make the decisions. <laughs> yes. like I'm prepared. So, okay, this has always been a very elusive... In college, I know um, I had three friends who were... Casting director. They were doing casting. I, I hesitate to call them casting directors, but they're getting started. They're pulling headshots. They're meeting actors and stuff. Uh, and in those days, it's easy because you're surrounded by movie people who need people in their films. Right. Um, but I think after that, it becomes kind of hazy. It's how do you break into the industry as a casting director?
1: Well, you know, it's it's a it's a funky business that we work in, and you know, there are some aspects of luck involved. There are aspects of talent, and there are aspects of skill. But you, I think, you have to define the the definition of each one of those. Words words correctly to understand what it truly means in show business. Because in my opinion, luck is not... The word luck is a lottery ticket. You know, Mm -hmm. buying a lottery ticket and winning, that's lucky. In show business, that really doesn't count. It's... You you have to... You have to be able to combine a talent that you were born with. Then you enhance upon that talent. Then you have to generate the skill set to showcase that talent. Mm -hmm. And this is where most actors fall apart. Uh, You know, I mean, I've met Probably three to five million actors in my career that I've auditioned on over four thousand different jobs, and easily half of them all sort of have the same opinion of what show business means. They believe that it's that when they're in the room auditioning, it's about them and it's about their talent, and it's, you know it, it, all eyes are on me. When in reality, that's not even close to the case, and a lot of seasoned professional actors don't even really understand what happens when they leave the room and that door closes. And you've got casting and you've got client in the office. They're pretty brutal. They're very, very straightforward. And it's not its its not because they're mean. It's not because they're nast, nasty or narcissistic or megalomaniacs. It's because we work extremely long hours, 15, 16 hour days. I did this for well over 20 years, six wow. day work weeks. And you have to love the business. But when actors come in and they, you know, want to start ham-handing everybody and they think that they want to joke around and have a good time, the dynamic inside of that room is is hard for even seasoned professionals to understand. Because so I'll give you an example. If you're, if you're doing a Walmart commercial,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you've got, even on a first call, you've got multiple people inside of the room, you've got agency producers, you've got directors, you've got casting, you've got associates, you've got session runners, you've got all of these people that are there watching your performance. And in reality, they're not actually watching your performance. They're watching the audio, audiovisual equipment, make sure that there's no issues with that. You've got the producer, and this is something that's quite fascinating. Uh, the dynamic between the people in the room that are making the decisions... Uh, You've got the the agency producer who's not focused on the actor. The agency producer is focused on the producer because they've hired the producer to produce the job. Mm. The producer is not focused on the actor either. The producer is now focused on the director. The director is really the only one that's focused on the actor pulling that performance from them. And that's the rub. That's the difficult part of the process. So for actors inside of that casting room, whether it's a first call, whether it's a callback, or whether it's a first call straight to callback, you have to understand what your place is and where you fit in. And I know this is a horrible way to make this sound, but it makes the most sense. Actors are like a shovel. And I know that that doesn't make a lot of sense, but if you, if you look at a gardener and you say to a gardener, okay, well, in order for me to get this hole dug, what do I have to do? What are the steps that I have to get done? You gotta take the shovel, you gotta put it in, you gotta find a hole, you gotta do all these variables. But if you take that same shovel and just throw it out into the middle of the garden, how many holes is it gonna dig? Mm-hmm. It's not gonna dig anything. You have gotta have someone there to pick it up and do that that's the director and the casting director's job. The actor is the tool. The actor is that shovel. So, the sharper that shovel is, the faster it will dig the hole. The more accurate it will dig the hole. The more dull that that tool becomes, the more dull it is on camera. So, you know, you've got those two elements that are constantly combined and for actors to gain success, they have to understand where their place is in the entertainment industry and whether you're a beginning green actor and you don't even know what an exhibite is all the way up to a list actors as well too. So and I've worked with the whole gamut of
0: mm. them. I mean, okay, so you must have like you said you've auditioned thousands and thousands. How do you millions. millions. <laughs> how do you know when you find the one?
1: That's a great question. Because
0: there's so many talented actors that like how, do you have like a feeling? Is it something you and the director talk about?
1: I'll let you in on a little secret. Okay. I never know who the one is.
0: Oh. And do
1: you know why? Why? I don't hire actors. That's not my job. The only actor I've ever hired in my career has been people to run lobbies or sessions or things along those lines. The casting director's job is not to hire actors. It's to put actors in front of the people that do hire them. So I have no control over who books the job. But I have all the control over who gets seen for the job. Mm. So as a casting director, in order to make my client happy and keep my client happy, because that's my bread and butter, I need to make sure that I'm putting the correct talent in front of them. So when I'm able to spot specific talent, then I'm able to utilize my memory, my brain, what their capabilities are, what they're not capable of doing, what their range is like, and then I can utilize them in each individual audition as necessary. And that brings up a really another really good point. A lot of, and even seasoned actors still believe this, and it doesn't make any sense to me, when you're an actor and you're going to audition for a job, you're not actually auditioning for a job. That's not the point. You're auditioning for a person that has thoughts, that has feelings, that has a brain, that can use that brain and remember you. So when you're going for what's what we actually call in this business, it's basically just a meet and greet or a general. When you're meeting with somebody, they want to know who you are. They don't want to know that you've put a facade up, a big wall in front of them and you're friendly and you're like this. They want to know who you are. So that's a really tough skill even for season actors to learn is the skill of learning how to be yourself but on purpose cuz i got to know are you going to be a prima donna are you going to want the red m&ms separated from the green mm-hmm. m&ms at the craft services table because if you're that kind of an actor it's my responsibility to ins- to let the director know this information as well too because they have to sit on set with them
0: well that brings up a really interesting question then what kind of relationship do you are you looking to have with actors? I know sometimes actors are like, I gotta go in and butter up the casting director and I gotta make sure that they remember my face and my name. What kind of relationship are you looking for when actors are coming into your office? I'm not
1: looking for a relationship at all. I don't want to have a relationship with actors. Got it. And I'm very blunt, as I think you guys can see. It's helpful. You know, it, I'm not there to party, I'm not there to have a good time. I'm there to do a job, mm. as are the actors. That's all this is. It's a job, just like any other. It's like being a surgeon or it's like being an attorney. In order for you to get to the point of where you are that surgeon or you are that attorney, you've got to go through so many steps to get the information that you need so you don't kill somebody on the table mm-hmm. or so that you don't end up putting some guy in prison that never did anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's there's there's no difference. It's a job, just like any other job that's out
0: there. So now I'm curious about when we're you're coming into audition, you've got, okay... I heard a friend the other day complaining about the fact that he had four auditions in a single day. Mm -hmm. His complaint wasn't so much that he was getting a lot of attention and getting called into a lot of things. It was that he had 15 pages for three of them and 25 pages for the fourth. Yeah, and trying to memorize all this material, but also there was a fear of if I turn it down... Maybe I'll never get asked in again, but if I'm not giving, putting my best foot forward and giving my best performance, how do you suggest managing that? Is it maybe don't take too many, or do you suggest never turning something down?
1: Good question. A lot of it depends on what you're auditioning for. I mean, if you're auditioning for a feature film, for a feature film, you've got to know it's going to be wall-to-wall copy. That's, that's an industry term as well, too. When there's a lot of dialogue you have to read, it's called wall-to-wall copy. When you're doing a commercial, you've got two or three lines of dialogue at the most. But when you're auditioning for a feature film, there's a huge amount of research that needs to be done for every single actor mm-hmm. that auditions for a job. And when you have that much dialogue, the casting directors can only see so many people. Mm-hmm. So they have to, I mean, for a commercial, if I'm going to do one role for a commercial and there's two lines of dialogue, I can see 80, 100 people in one day. If I'm doing a feature film that's got... Like, as you mentioned, 25 or 30 pages of dialogue. I'll be lucky if I could see eight actors in a day. So the way that I'm scheduling that session, I have to make sure that each person that I bring in is efficient enough to at least complete the dialogue. And that's the issue. And that brings up a, a kind of, a, I guess, a, a story... That um, happened to me. This was, man, I want to say maybe probably 15 years at least at this Mm. point. I did an M.O.W. for CBS. Now, for those of you that don't know, an M.O.W. is a movie of the week. They don't use that term as much these days. Kind of like the Lifetime movies. Um, This was a really tough job. It was about cancer. And it was a first-time writer-director who had never really had any experience in the business. And kind of put odd demands on us, which was, we need the the talent of an A-lister and the body of a D-lister. And I'm like, okay, uh, uh, how am I supposed to do that? But okay, I'll do the best that I can. So I brought an actress in, at, uh, but I'd only known her for a few years at the time. And the reason I brought her in was because she's very affable, very easy to get along with, very, very friendly. And I needed to make sure that the director had somebody, since he was so green, had somebody that he can work with. And in the Screen Actors Guild, for those of you that don't know, we have what's called a 60-minute rule, which means that I'm allowed to have an actor 60 minutes for free. If I go over 60 minutes, even so much as 60 seconds, and they sign out on that Exhibit E, I have to pay that actor $37.50 for every 30-minute increment out of my own pocket. So... I, I don't have that much time to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. But this particular um, uh, actress i brought in, and normally when it's dialogue this tough, I won't rehearse an actor more than 20, maybe 30 minutes because I've got to lay down multiple takes. And then usually that night when I'm done, which is usually about 10 o'clock at night, I've got to go through and, and either I or my session runner's got to do edits to be able to get our client the best takes. Well, I rehearsed her for, had to be 50, 55 minutes. There was nothing there. There was no emotion. She may as well have been talking about a carrot or a a, a piece of string bean or something like that. So I reached around and I turned the camera off. I said, you know, I really hope I'm not the first person to tell you this, but you're a horrible actor. Who told you to come to L.A.? Did your grandma tell you you were really cute in some play when you were 12 and you need to come out here to L.A. and waste everybody's time? Because what you've just done is you've just now alienated a casting director. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a really good look around my office. I want you to burn a picture in your brain of what it looks like in here. I said, do you know why I'm asking you to do this? And she says, well, well, no. And I said, because it's the last time you're ever going to see it. And when you walk out my door, I'm calling your talent agent, and I'm threatening your talent agent that if she doesn't drop you as a client, none of her clients will ever get another time from me the rest of the jobs that I ever cast, which is pretty brutal and pretty fierce. And most actors can't handle that kind of in-your-face type of, of casting. Um, so at this particular point, I'm already almost into overtime. She's already wasted an hour of my time. I'm not about to pay her overtime. So what do you think my reaction was at this point? Now she starts crying. Now she's crying, which I needed an hour earlier, and there, there was nothing there. So, you know, there's there, a lot of times there's not a lot you can do. So as the tears began to flow, I had five minutes left. I reached back around and I turned the camera back on. And I said, action. And she booked that job in less than 60 seconds in one take. Wow. This is what we do for a living. Mm. Because I knew perfectly well I was not going to get the performance that I needed from her. Uh, Just, okay, here you go. I needed to pull that performance from her. And she had no idea what I was doing at the time. I knew I didn't have any more time to waste. So I had to do what I had to do to get the performance from her. And this is one example of many that, that you have to be able to manipulate the human mind every single time they're doing something odd. I mean, being an actor, it's a crazy job. It's one of the craziest jobs on the face of the planet. I still can't fathom why people would want to put themselves out there to be judged Every moment of every single day. And that's exactly what they do. The, I, I'll give, here's an example. What's the second biggest fear of the human species? Not number one. What, number, what do you think number two is?
0: Being judged? Number Death? T-
1: yes, yeah. you're correct. Hmm. Number two is dying. What do you think number one is?
0: Being judged.
1: Public speaking. Ah. So, in other words, if I'm at a funeral... I would much rather be in the casket than standing up delivering the eulogy. This is the typical human mind. So you're getting into a job that's absurd and abnormal to start with. And then to put yourself out there to be judged consistently over and over and over again, you can imagine how much thick skin that actually takes because not everybody can do it.
0: See, I really appreciate this frankness. I know some people might be balking at, like, how oh, you just make somebody cry? But I feel like, especially having seen actors go through it and knowing, you know, many of them holding four jobs down so that they can do the acting thing, which usually doesn't pay a single bill, but at least got them, like some exposure yeah. or, or in the presence of the right people, I think coming in knowing that that you need to have a tough skin knowing that people are going to try to provoke you to get the emotions they need out of you because they have to get that shot because it is expensive and Correct. time consuming. I think all of this is valuable. What can actors be doing ahead of time to kind of either build that thick skin or or be the most prepared they can be coming into this?
1: Learn your job. <laughs> That's all there is to it. You're an actor. It's a job. And this is a, you know, this is a really good story. I, I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard of the actor Kevin Spacey. Yes. Well. You know, Kevin has sort of this this mantra that he talks about, and I've got two little Kevin Spacey stories I want to tell you. I love it. Um, the first one, he was on a television show called Inside the Actor Studio. So, for those actors that are out there, I'm sure you guys have seen this. This was an old episode. This was about 12 or maybe 15 years ago. And uh, one of the young students had stood up and said, "You know, Mr. Spacey, you know, I'm such a huge fan. You know, your your work has motivated me. And 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 my main question is, how did you get through the dry times, waiting for that brass ring to come?" waiting for that final success. What did you do? How did you motivate yourself through those dry times? And then suddenly had that success. And then you knew that it was all worth it. And he just sort of, he shook his head a little bit and got this wry smile and put his head down and then just kind of looks over to this kid and says, I don't know where you're getting your information, young man, but there's no brass ring to be had. It doesn't exist. It's not out there. There's just the work. That's it. It's, it's a job. And if you spend your entire career waiting for some facsimile of success that you've created in your own brain, you're going to miss everything there is to be about an actor. And I'll tell you another story. I know I'm a little long-winded, but this, this this comes straight into it. Um, whenever I teach, I, I usually like to close with you know, something that somewhat is motivating to them so that they understand where they fit in and this job is not all bad. It's not all nasty. It's not all negative. You don't have to deal with people like me all the time, constantly. But when you, regardless of what kind of business you're going to get into, um, you have to find your happy medium. You have to understand what your purpose is and why you're even doing it. And this brings up a good point. My mom had one goal in her entire life which was to just say that she stood under the Eiffel Tower. That was it. And it's not a difficult goal to achieve. She didn't say she would want to be the president of the United States. She didn't want to be a billionaire. She just wanted to stand at the Eiffel Tower. So, about I think it was maybe about 15, well 12 about 15 years ago, I brought her to Europe and we did the whole European tour. We did Italy and we did France and the whole nine yards. And the first stop, I think we stopped in Amsterdam, and then we had to take a train from Amsterdam to the Paris Uh, station and then take a taxi from the Paris station to the Eiffel Tower. Well, we hadn't checked into our hotel. We hadn't done anything. And we had all of our luggage and all of our bags there. And my mom's got a fake hip as well, too. So, you know, her getting around, sorry, mom, but her (laughs) getting around was, was, you know, somewhat difficult. So um, and my mother's the exact opposite, exact opposite of me. She's very calm. She's very reserved. She's very sweet. She's very, you know, very relaxed. Well, uh, if there are any Parisians listening, I, <laughs> I'm apologizing in advance, uh, but however, Parisians are not known to like Americans very much. Not not the French, just people that live in Paris, mm. and they don't like people that don't speak French. So for us, it was a double whammy. Oh boy. We didn't speak French, and we weren't French, yeah. and we were American. So anyway, we get into the taxi, and about, I don't know, maybe five, six minutes into the cab ride... This cab driver starts talking to somebody on the radio, and he's being very rude. He's being very obnoxious. You know, he's telling us, you know, you need to go this way and you need to go this way. And my mother's like, "Who, who are you? Who are you?" And start out of nowhere, starts screaming at this guy, "What? Who do you think you are? How dare you treat people like this?" And it literally went on and on. And I'm saying to myself, "Who is this woman? I've never <laughs> met this woman in my life." But suddenly there she was. So we pull the cab over, and she says, "Let me out!" And we're three blocks away from the Eiffel Tower. "Let me out! Let me out!" We're dragging all of our bags. Out, She's got a bag of hip, and we're, we're kind of limping down the street, dragging all of our suitcases just to get to the Eiffel Tower. Well, the reason that I tell this story is because we still talk about this today. As a matter of fact, I literally just talked to her about this last night. Hmm. And every time we talk about the story, it gets funnier. It gets more dramatic. It gets more interesting. <laughs> but what's interesting about the story is not once have we ever mentioned the fact that we actually stood at the Eiffel Tower. The only thing that we ever talk about was the journey to get there. And that's all we really have. We all, That's all we have is just the journey because you can't do anything to change yesterday. And nobody is guaranteed tomorrow. So if you focus your entire life thinking about, oh, man, I just went to that audition and I blew it. I should have said this or I should have said that. I can't begin to tell you how many actors have come back and knocked on the door after they've left saying, Oh, I, I got, an, I have another idea. Can I, can I do it again? Can I do another take? Can I do this or can I do that? The answer is no. Because what happened in that room was part of your journey, good or bad. It doesn't matter. Casting directors have intelligence. We can use our imagination. So it, even if you blow lines or there's an industry term doing what's called farting through all of your dialogue... Even if, which basically means forgetting your dialogue and then trying to improvise it and then completely blowing it. Even actors that do that, that's part of the process that we go through. And that allows us more information as well too. So as actors, if you can focus your entire life just on the journey, then you've already won then you've already got the success because that's what this is about. There's only the work. That's it. And if you can focus on that, understand what your place is and say, this is my journey, this is what I'm planning on doing, then no one can stop you. Mm -hmm. And then there are no such things as failures. And that, I I absolutely despise that word. There's no such thing as a failure in this business. Nobody fails. There's just people that quit. Mm. And why do they quit? Because they have no idea what they're doing. Because they believed grandma. (laughs) That they were so talented, and they came out here, and they decided they were going to give it a shot. And, unfortunately, many, many, many of those hundreds of thousands of those actors every year get taken advantage of so badly. Mm -hmm. Because this is what will happen. They believe Grandma. They come in here to get on a plane from Alabama, from Italy, wherever they're coming from. They come out here ready to go, raring to go. Grandma said I was talented. I'm here to go. They buy an agency bu- an agency guide from Samuel French. They start sending out their headshots. Now, most people would say, anybody that knows anything about the business, you're not going to get any calls. No one's going to call you. But in reality, there will be people that will call. Unfortunately, the reality of those people that call is kind of a nightmare because this is what happens. Oh, we think you've got a great look. You, you're very commercial. Why don't you come down to our office, do a cold reading for us, and then we'll see how good you are. And if, if we think that you're good, then we'll start submitting you for work. So you've been here two weeks. You call grandma on the phone. Grandma, I can't believe it. My dream is coming, you were right. My dream is coming true. I've already got my first meeting with a talent agency. So you're doing cartwheels. You can't believe it. You're ecstatic. You don't know anything about show business, but now you've got your first your first meeting. So. You go down there. They say, you know, you know you're know, you great. You're wonderful. These, heads, these pictures you have here, these are not really industry standards. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to this specific photographer and take mm-hmm. about $5,000 worth of photos. Mm-hmm. Then once you're done with that, I need you to go to this specific acting teacher and get about $5,000 worth of acting classes. Mm-hmm. Now, once you're done with both of those, come back and then we'll start submitting you. So what do you do? You believe the only person that you know because you have no other intelligence when it comes to the entertainment industry of what you're supposed to do or how to get started. So you jump through those hoops. You spend the five grand. Headshots, by the way, are about $250. But for the the story, you spend the five grand. Then you go spend the $5,000 on the acting classes so somebody can teach you how to walk with a book on your head, teaching you balance or something because we know how important that is. (laughs) Then once you've jumped through both of those hoops, you go back there, you knock on the door, they open Can we help you? And then you say, well, wait a minute. Don't you remember me? You know, I was in here a couple months ago. You said, do this, and you do this. I did that, and I did this. So here I am. I'm ready to work. And this is exactly what they hear. Well, you know, business is a bit slow right now. So I tell you what, why don't you leave some of these headshots, and if anything comes in that we think you're right for, we'll submit you, and we'll let you know. Now, what just happened to that actor? They just got taken advantage of. They just got robbed, basically, Mm -hmm. because... In this business, the more you know, the better off you are. If, he, if this particular actor had known that if uh, you were a SAG franchise Screen Actors Guild agent, you're not allowed to do that, mm-hmm. you can't take them to one specific place. You have to give them a list. If the Screen Actors Guild finds out that you took a kickback or a payback from that photographer or from that acting instructor, they'll take that franchise away. That's part of the process, but for actors that don't know any better... That's the first thing. They're going to listen to the first thing that somebody gives them information from. They get taken advantage of. They get bitter. They get angry. They go back home with their tail between their legs. Hating L.A., hating the narcissistic people that work in this business. They're all con men. They're all, they're, they'll rob you a blind out there. Yeah. And why? Because they had no idea what they were doing here. Right. And that is, that's one of the worst parts of this business. And then, if those actors are incredibly unlucky, then they run into somebody like me. And they usually have a tendency to run into somebody like me on my 15th or 16th hour. Mm. They don't know. They have no idea what they're doing. They don't know the union rules. They don't know the paperwork. They don't know the call time. They don't know the wardrobe they're supposed to be on. They've never read the script. They have no idea what they're doing. When those actors show up in my lobby I and they'll come to me and say, hey, you know, there's this paperwork here. How am I supposed to fill this out? I'll say, hey, you know what? I'm a little busy right now. Give me a minute. The reason I'm asking them to sit down is because I don't have enough people in my lobby to embarrass them thoroughly enough, because I may only have 100 people there. I want 300 people in my lobby. I want 400 people in my lobby. And I'll make that actor sit there for an hour until that happens. Then once I can't fit another body inside of that lobby, I will pull that actor to the center of the room, and I'll I'll say, look around. Do you see these actors that are here? These are professional actors. They know what they're doing. Why are you here wasting their time? Why are you here wasting my time? And then I give them the same spiel. Look around my office, get a good picture because you're never coming back here again. And then, after I've treated them so badly and so poorly that they feel so small that they could dangle off a dime, I go home that night. I have a nice warm meal. I have a beautiful bottle of Merlot. I get an incredible night's sleep and I never think about them again. That's show business. That's what this business is.
0: I almost want to stand and applaud. And again, people think <laughs> yeah. this is mean, but it's not mean. Like, if you no. don't know your, like, the most, many actors, when they start, have no idea that there's going to be paperwork involved. Like, what is all of this stuff that I have to do? Yeah. Why do I have to fill all these things out? Why, what is an I-9? What, how do I file this stuff for taxes? At right. the, if you don't know any of these things, you risk screwing over your entire production because when Correct. they get audited, if your paperwork is not done correctly, everybody else is in a huge trouble. Well, it's
1: not just that either. It's the Screen Actors Guild that, that will bury casting directors mm-hmm. as well, too, because we have what's called an exhibit E. Now, this exhibit E is a commercial sign-in sheet, and it has to be filled out very, very specifically, which is what brings that 60-minute rule back that I had talked to you guys about. If actors don't fill this out correctly, or they put the wrong call time, or the wrong in time, or the wrong out time, or fail to put their member number, or their social security number, whatever they've done, this has to go back to Station 12 at the Screen Actors Guild. When they look at that, they look at this and say, Well, there's a lot of whiteouts on this, there's crossing out, there's this and that. I think this casting director may be trying to pull a fast one and not have to pay any of his actors any overtime. Mm. And that becomes the issue. So when actors don't know that information, I certainly don't have five minutes to stop what I'm doing to teach them their job while they're doing it. That's no different than one of the two of you having to go have a hernia surgery at the hospital walking in and there's your doctor standing there with a really sharp butcher knife and a coat has never gone to medical school. But he, but the knife he owns is really, really sharp and and the coat is really white. So that should be all that really matters. Now, I'm sure If you're a regular person, you'd be far angrier at that than a casting director treating an actor poorly for not knowing their job. If my surgeon doesn't know their job, I guarantee you I'm gonna be just a bit more agitated (laughs) if I'm still alive.
0: What's the smallest thing an actor can do that would make the biggest difference?
1: Learn how to be themselves on purpose. That is such a hard, hard thing to do. We know you can act. If you're an actor and you're standing in my lobby, great. That's fine, that's wonderful. That's glorious. But that's 10% of the job. The other 90% is being able to find a way to showcase that talent. And if you don't have the information and if you don't know what is expected of you, the only acting you'll ever be doing will be in your living room. Mm -hmm. And that's the saddest part. And most people don't understand that. They just believe... I was told I'm attractive, I was told I'm a good liar or I'm a great actor. I did those plays when I was in high school. You know, I did the I did the Sweeney Todd. I was Sweeney Todd. Why does no one in Hollywood recognize my talent? Well, nobody in Hollywood recognizes your talent because you can't get in the door. Mm. And it, once you get in the door, there are not that many casting directors that are out there. A lot of people think that there are just hundreds of thousands. There aren't. There's about 3 to 400 maximum. In L.A. that are prolific, that do more than one or two jobs every month. Mm -hmm. Now, the facility that I was working at, I was doing seven, eight jobs a week, every single week, sometimes five, six thousand actors through my lobby every single day doing Polaroids, doing size sheets, checking their times, making sure they're available for callbacks. All of these are all variables that every casting director has to deal with. And that's why casting directors have to put their trust in the people that they hire. Because we're not one-man bands. We can't do it by ourselves. So when I'm casting a job, I have to make sure that I've got a lobby runner in my office. Now, if I'm casting more than one job, depending on how good the lobby runner is, they may be able to run the lobby for multiple jobs. Most are not. Most of them are actors that are just trying to kind of get in on every casting they possibly can, and they work cheaply. So that's the reason that they do that job. So I have to be very cautious about who I'm hiring to run my lobby because that's money running out the door. Mm -hmm. Every overtime is $37.50 out of my pocket, and I can't afford to do that. So I've got to make sure my lobby runner knows what they're doing. Then I've got to make sure that my session runner knows what they're doing. Now, there's two different types of things in this business. You've got the casting director and the casting associate. They're pretty much the shingle that's hanging out there. They're the ones that are doing what's called prepping the job. We get the breakdown or the specs on the job, the specifications, what the run is, what the rate is, you know, whether it's union, whether it's non-union, all the different variables, what we're looking for, what type of ethnicity, what age frame, all the rest of these are variables. Well, when, when, when we get those breakdowns and we put those breakdowns out, we also have to have higher session runners and lobby runners to make sure that they're running the session correctly because I can't be prepping a job or prepping a callback or prepping something for a booking day. And then also run the session as well and run my lobby. So I've got multiple people working for me. So when I'm hiring a session runner, that's the person who's running the camera, who's handling the online postings, who's basically I met with earlier in the day and said, this is the blocking, this is what they want, this is the way the dialogue needs to be delivered, let's move through. And then what I'll do is I actually do what's called sitting in video village, especially if I've got multiple jobs. If I've got four or five jobs going on, I'm sitting there watching a bank of televisions, wow. all with the, all with volume turned down because I have to trust my session runner and I can't listen to volume on four of them. But it does allow me out of the corner of my eye to watch the blocking, to make sure that they're moving in and out of the scene correctly. That's the first process. Then I'm sitting in front of a bank of three computers prepping one first call. Prepping a callback, handling all the Station Twelve information, then p- pulling into actually bid another job as well too, because that's how casting directors get jobs. Uh, we have to bid them against others. People don't just come and go. Here you go. Here's a job for you. Mm-hmm. Doesn't work that way. Sometimes it does if you've got a really good relationship with the producer or the director. They will come to you consistently. But just because they're coming to me does not necessarily mean they're going to hire me. They may find someone that will do it faster, cheaper, or better, or no better talent or have a way to be able to get them what they need less expensively because it's all about the mighty dime. That's exactly what everything is in show business. So that's the process that casting goes through every job we have.
0: So it's understandable why, you know, people not being on their game or prepared when they show up is frustrating when you have that many balls in the air. I cannot take on anything else. I also like what you say about coming in as yourself and the challenge of just being yourself. Constance Zimmer, who, if you guys watch Entourage at all, uh, she played Dana Gordon on the show. She talked about booking that role and how she went into the audition room and she was tired. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of lines that didn't pertain to her scene or her characters that they were reading. And she's like, can we just skip all of that and just get to the thing? And they were like, yeah okay i guess <laughs> she read it and she left thinking like well blew that one will probably never get called back for anything i was so rude but that was the character and Correct. she could do it just being herself they were like book it it's and done. that's an
1: interesting story because had that been any other kind of a job she would have completely alienated people and i'll tell you why Um, I also did another M.O.W. for CBS. This was about the BTK killer. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked with uh, Susie Glixman and a couple of other people on this process. And I don't know if you guys remember who that serial killer was. He was the bind, torture, kill serial killer. Um, We hadn't seen that many people. Um, And I believe Greg Henry actually booked the job, if I do remember correctly. But we had multiple actors that had come in, and I'm not going to mention the name of the actor. It's too small of a business. But an actor had come in, And basically told us what dialogue he was comfortable delivering and what he wasn't comfortable delivering and said, you know what, because we had three different sets of sides out. We had to see the range of them. We can't just see crazy serial killer because then there's no range because serial killers still, we still have to find a way to humanize them. So in most cases, at least. And in this particular thing, one of the scenes he didn't want to do, he said, "No, I, f- I found some poetry that this person had written online, and I'd much rather read that and do the poetry." <laughs> and I looked over at, at and She looks at me, and I'm, we're like, "Okay, you know, do whatever you want to do." And we were very positive because you know he was well, not necessarily an A-lister, but probably more like more B, C, D, C, D list. And he, you know, it was a nightmare to deal with. And those type of actors. We have to notify the director of as what's called a director's nightmare, Mm. which means they may be a good actor. They may be able to deliver believable dialogue, but you're going to hate working with them on set. And you have to be on set with these people sometimes for months at a time. And who wants to spend time on set for months with a prima donna? Who's going to tell you what they want to do and what they don't want to do? And I've rewritten the dialogue. and that that's, that's no way to, to work in the business. It doesn't matter whether you're an A-lister or whether you're a no-lister. And there's A-listers out there that try to get away with exactly the same thing. And, and in many cases, they can't get away with it. And then it will affect their career as well.
0: See that New York Times Lindsay Lohan piece from about a year ago.
1: Well, Mm -hmm. I I feel bad for that poor... I mean, and as sad as it is, she's really a wonderful actor. She really is. She's a wonderful actor.
0: Parent trap was my... She's magnetic, yeah.
1: Unfortunately, though, uh, you know, and and I don't know too much about her on a personal level. Mm -hmm. She probably didn't have very good parental supervision. She talks about in that article. And when you're young and you're entering a business, this is not, you know, this isn't a baseball game after school. Mm -hmm. This isn't soccer. This isn't tag. This isn't hide-and-seek. This is a job, and when you're a child having to do a job, it really messes with your mind, and it, it, it sort of forces you to become an adult much faster than every other kid that's out there. Now, of course, you know, I'm 50 now, but and in kids back in my day were vastly different than the kids that we have today. Sure. I mean, a 12- or a 13-year-old kid today is probably equivalent of what it would have been 20 back in my day mm-hmm. with the information that they have. And, you know, in my day, we didn't have, there was no cell phones, there was no internet, there were no computers, it was none of that stuff. If I wanted to get information, I had to go to the library. I had to open this thing that we used to call a book (laughs) that had pages and paper in it and get my information, which was usually outdated. Now you just pull out your cell phone and you've got everything you need right there. Mm -hmm. So that's the way, that's the times. Times have changed. And even in casting, things have changed. And not necessarily for the better. I'm a bit old school when it comes to casting and I like to have actors in front of my face so that I can direct them. And nowadays a lot of that's not even been done about half the time that we that people do casting now, it's done from you know 2000 miles away. They say, "No, this is the blocking. This is what we'd like you to do. Go ahead and put it down on tape and then just send that to us." Which basically forces the actor not only to be an actor, now they have to be a director, too. Mm -hmm. And there's no way I can't give them a redirect. I can't direct anything from them. So if what they're sending me is the wrong reading or there's no way for them to be able to book this job based on what I just saw, there's no range there. It makes it even more difficult. And that's the really unfortunate part of the business that has changed and it's probably going to end up segueing casting completely out of the business, which, wow. you know, what doesn't does make that? a lot of sense. I
0: was going to say, how do we, I mean, casting directors, I have one friend who went on to be a casting director, and she is a phenomenal human being, and we frequently talk about the fact that casting directors and don't...
1: Joy, and she's a casting
0: director? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> I mean, but again, I'm sitting here like loving your frankness, and she's that frank with everything, and it's it, very okay. helpful. All right. um, but she, uh, she, we were talking about just the struggle of like the fact that casting directors get no uh, credit for anything they do, mm-hmm. really, yeah. um, within the industry. There's no casting director Oscar, which is incredible when we We're have ensembles. Yeah, I'm with you guys, especially when you like, look at big ensemble pieces like I don't, August Sage County or something, yeah. where you need all those actors to not just be individually... Incredible, But also be able to work with one another.
1: And believe it or not, it's not just because a lot of times when you're just working with above-the-line talent with the A-listers, that's an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. If you're dealing with a script where you don't have the budget for an A-lister, you need talent. And that's almost impossible to find with that kind of a process. You've got to have a rapport with them. And then it gets even worse if we've got somebody doing that on a first call, and we say, oh, yeah, we like you, we think you're great. There's no way to be able to see any kind of chemistry between an actor, above-the-line actor you may already have booked, and someone that's supposed to play their son or their daughter or sister or brother, whatever it may be. There's got to be some kind of chemistry there. And the director has the ability to be able to see that very, very quickly at a callback. But if the callback is being done from 2,000 miles away where's where's the there's no connection anymore it just doesn't exist
0: so then what is your advice to actors going from I mean, I've talked to professional actors uh, Louis Tan we had in the studio a couple weeks ago talking about this his audition for Iron Fist he had to do mm-hmm. via like an iPad yeah. in a hotel room and he's yeah. swinging swords or and, Skype
1: or something else yeah, yeah.
0: trying to be a, a drunken master he said I. he recently re the tape and was like Man, I don't even know how I got booked on this looking at it. He's like, it looks terrible. So what advice do you have for actors who, who want to put their best foot forward and have to go through this process of being thousands of miles away to audition?
1: I'll tell you what. And, and it, especially if it's for a theatrical job. Now, the word theatrical in L.A. has nothing to do with theater. Mm-hmm. The word theatrical in L.A. means film yeah. and television. If you are auditioning for a theatrical job, you have to remember that the dialogue that you're delivering and everything that's coming out of your mouth um, is a much more complex process than it would be for any other type of audition that you're dealing with. Mm. So as a beginning actor, the most important thing to deal with, if you're going for a feature film or a television show audition, read the script. I can't tell you how many times I have had actors come into my office, and the fir- you almost always, the first question out of my mouth is, well, first of all, did you find us okay? Everything is good. I want to kind of get them in a good mood. Sure. And then what did you think of the script? I don't ask them if they've read it. I say, what did you think of the script? And when actors tell me, God, you know, I didn't I didn't have time to read the script oh last. I got this call very late. It was, you know, I, I do have the sides. I'm not really off book. Oh, but just, so do you mind if I hold the dialogue? I will say, uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I do mind. I appreciate you coming in today, but I have no room for you. Actors that don't even bother to read a script, that's your job. If you got an audition at 10 o'clock at night and you got the script at 10 o'clock at night, then you better be sitting there until 1 o'clock in the morning reading that script. You're never going to find out anything about the character without that. You need to be able to work with other characters. It's not just your dialogue that you're reading. And so many of those, the the teen beginning high school actors, when they get their dialogue for whatever high school play or musical they're going to do, what's the very first thing they do? They go through and then they start highlighting whose lines Just Mm -hmm. their line. So basically, this is me, me, me. The rest (laughs) of this is baloney. None of this matters. None of this matters. Me, me, me is what it becomes. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a major issue for somebody whose only job is to understand the character that they're playing. And for actors that don't understand the character that they're playing or they're just playing themselves, that's as transparent as saran wrap. Mm -hmm. And we don't waste any time with those people. You've got it. You've got it. This is what I want this is what I need. This is the time frame that I needed in. Can you do this or not? It's very cut and dry. There's no time to play around. We don't have time to be nice. We don't have time to teach you your job while you're doing it, mm. just as you would not be teaching your surgeon how to cut into you while he's doing <laughs> yeah. it. It just doesn't work that way. Absolutely. Yeah. So the more you know, the better off you are. Now, that being said, if I want to be that doctor and if I go to high school and I go to college and I go to medical school and I do my internship, I'm probably going to be a doctor, lawyer, go to high school, go to college, go to law school, pass the bar, probably going to be a lawyer. There are some instances in show business and there are actors that I've known for 30 years Mm -hmm. who will never see the light of day. You could be standing next to them at a grocery store and you'd never know who they were. Mm -hmm. But this does not mean that they're not a successful actor. Absolutely. It depends on your version of success And for those actors that are out there that believe the only true version of success is being a millionaire and being an A-lister and being a household (laughs) name, you are in for quite a shock because there are so few of those out there. And the ones Mm -hmm. that do exist are there for a reason because they possess multiple skill sets. They're not just attractive, they're not just good actors, they don't just know show business, they have the combination of all three of those. That's when you see those Christian Bales, those Brad Pitt's, those Angelina Jolie's, those Jennifer Aniston's. When you see them delivering the dialogue and you see how natural they are, there's a reason why they're like that, because there's got to be some talent there. There's got to be something there. No one can teach a general person if they've never acted before and they have no idea what they're doing, nor do they have the inclination they want to do it. You can't suddenly force them to be an actor. It's never going to work. So every actor that I have ever met in my entire life, and I'm talking about every single one of them, no one forced them to be an actor. No one put a gun to their head and said, <laughs> go to LA and make me rich and make me famous. It doesn't happen. You're doing this of your own volition. When you do this based on your own information then you're the one that's responsible for everything that happens to you, good or bad. You know, you're responsible for your success. And you're responsible if you choose to quit the business. Mm-hmm. Because that's really all there are is out there is just people that quit.
0: So I want to ask you one more thing about the changing industry and the way things are moving. Something that I think has been confusing and complicated for actors since maybe the invention of acting. Mm-hmm. The headshot. Yeah. Cool. We know, we know, we know for a fact. You want it printed on good paper, and we know for a fact that your resume needs to be attached on the back of it. Other than that, the rules vary. They do. So heavily.
1: And what's interesting, too, is you're going to get a different opinion from every single person that you talk to. Mm-hmm. Even some of the students that I've taught before, um, you know, I'll talk about headshots, I'll talk about the process, I'll talk about a lot of these things. And sometimes they'll raise their hand and they'll say, I, I don't, Chris, I don't understand what you just said. What you just said to me is the exact opposite of what my teacher just said to me yesterday. Mm-hmm. And then I have to say, ah, but let me ask you a question. Was that teacher an actor? <laughs> and nine times out of well, yeah. And I said, Well, there you go. They have much different experiences than I do as a CD. Now, the experiences of a CD are gonna be vastly different than that of an agent. Mm. The experiences of an agent are different than a manager and a director and a producer. We all have different experiences in this business. So anybody you can get information from is great. You take what works for you and you discard the rest. So when they raise their, you know, their hand and they ask that type of question. I'm simply saying, hey, it's just my opinion. I'm just a dude. I'm a guy. You know, that's all that I am, and and I, I know the business pretty well. Uh, it's really all that I know. I'm not trained to do anything else. It's actually kind of sad, but <laughs> you know that, that's the case. But I also love this business more than life itself. And if you don't have that same passion, and a lot of times when I'm teaching, people will kind of confuse the way that I speak and that I teach with bitterness and and anger. Who's a 50 year old dude? You know, get it. You had your time in the sun. <laughs> no, get out. and no. Let us do it. That's not what this is. This is passion. Mm -hmm. And my expectation is no different than everybody else's expectation out there. If you want to work in this business, then you need to work. You can't just Mm -hmm. run around Hollywood telling everybody you're an actor. Mm -hmm. you got to actually do it. And there are about 160,000 professional actors in this entire country. But if you walked around L.A. today, you can find 2 million people easily that raise their hand and go, I'm an actor. I'm a professional actor. No, you're really just a waiter and you're a bartender. That's what you do for a living. And that's all you'll ever do because you don't know what you're doing that's kind of like someday I hope to be a doctor well great you're never going to be one until you actually go to school and learn how to do it Mm -hmm. so it's that's the same it's a business it is a business just like any other
0: so if we're taking anything away from today it's A be passionate B know your craft know your craft know your craft And uh, see, maybe go out there and do the things. I don't know what that beeping is. Is it? It's time. It's oh. time to end. That's the beeping. It's the end. It's ah, the end right. of the show. Well, Chris, it is your passion is, is contagious. I feel like I want to go out and act. I'm not an actor, but I feel <laughs> I feel the fire for it. And uh, I think that's amazing. We really appreciate you coming here and dispensing all of your wisdom with Absolutely. us. Absolutely.
1: You know, it, it, it's a fun job. It, it can definitely be a fun job if you do it correctly.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: even though you may do it correctly, it does not necessarily mean you're going to have the success that you truly wish. So the final thing that I'm going to leave you with is do everything in your power to adjust what success truly means to you. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, success is taking home a paycheck for doing something that you love. Mm-hmm. And so few people on the planet can say that. Everybody that I know that doesn't work in the entertainment industry does one thing all day long at their job. Oh man, is it five o'clock, and I go home now. Is it time? I gotta gotta go home, man. I'm be that tired. I'm gonna... That's what they do. So you have to you have to find your passion in the good and the bad. And if you can't, then this might not be the right business for you. As tough as that is to hear,
0: that's wise sage advice. Miss Avi DuVernay calls that finding the joy in what you're doing. Because otherwise, why are you here? Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. This was wonderful. Hey, no, thank you. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Right here. Uh, We'll be back at 4 o'clock, and we'll have a surprise guest, so stay tuned. We'll see you guys next week.
1: Kevin Undergaro, Phil Spitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.